Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode is recorded on Monday, August 13th, 2018, starting at 12.56pm in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 168th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Dennis Harness about dynamics and sometimes challenges that can arise for consulting astrologers when they're seeing clients. Uh, hi, Dennis. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris. Great to see you again. Yeah, uh, it's been a long time. I saw you at, at UAC a few months ago, but otherwise it had been a while since I'd actually met up with you in person. Uh, but you're actually one of my first teachers. I studied uh, Vedic astrology with you at Kepler for a while about a decade ago. Yeah, that was a great, great experience. Right. That was my my introduction to both Hellenistic and Vedic astrology happened at the same time. And that became, of course, like a, a passion of mine over the course of the past decade that I eventually wrote my book about. But you were part of that whole introduction. Oh, great. Yeah, that was a wonderful time with Demetra George and just the cross-pollination that we saw going on between Hellenistic and uh, Vedic astrology. Sure. All right. So, Let's uh, so so part of the genesis of this episode is that I'm actually in the process of developing a course called the Professional Astrologer Course to help astrologers who've been studying the topic for a while but aren't professionals yet to make the transition into doing consultations and then eventually figuring out how to make it and become successful in the field. But I wanted to talk to you today because one of the topics I'm trying to address is some of the things that new uh, professional astrologers need to know when they're trying to make that transition into becoming a consulting astrologer and some of the dynamics that might arise that they should probably be aware of. And I remember when I was at Kepler studying with you that one of the the classes or one of the talks that you gave one day was kind of connected with this topic. And you had written an article where you talked about different consultation dynamics that astrologers need to be aware of, both um, some positive ones as well as some potential challenges. And I always really appreciated that talk that you gave. So I thought this would be, you'd be a great person to talk to about this topic. So, what is your, maybe we should start by just introducing you to the audience. What's your background in astrology and how did you get into the subject? You know, I started studying astrology around the age of 20. And I was originally uh, drawn to Western or tropical astrology. I didn't even know about Vedic astrology. So this is back in the mid-70s. And I read books like uh, Rob Hand's book, Planets in Transit, which is kind of interesting because it works whether you're using a tropical or sidereal zodiac. He doesn't even talk about zodiac much in that book. Mm, right. And then uh, Sakoan and Aker's book, The Astrologer's Handbook, and uh, Pelletier's book on aspects which again, that's one of the other areas where Vedic astrology and Western astrology really connect up is the aspects between the planets are there in both systems. So right. long story short, I, I was studying it and just kind of, you know, it was on the back burner. I was getting my uh, degree in counseling psychology. And what happened was in 1980, I went to Santa Monica, California to see Swami Muktananda and to meet his astrologer, Chakrapani Ulal. So in that summer of 1980, I had a reading or a consultation with Chakrapani, and it was just really profound. I mean, it was a profound on a lot of levels, but uh, he was somewhat predictive, definitely in his approach to astrology, which is one of the challenges we'll talk about today. 
But I remember one of the things he said to me right off the bat was, you will be married twice. Wow. And I hadn't, I hadn't even been engaged once. <laughs> sure. <laughs> a little, little disconcerting. But sure enough, that came to pass, you know, in terms of uh, the two marriages. But he also went on to say, during the session, I know your mind very well. And then he made this statement, perhaps better than you. Now, I would not say that to a client, but it had a strong impact on me. And at the, at the time, I, there was some truth to what he was saying. So uh, fast forwarding, I had this session with him, but the books were written about Vedic astrology are mostly coming from India at that point. And so they had a lot of Sanskrit or Hindi in them. And so they were kind of hard to follow for me. So I put Vedic astrology on the back burner and continued to study Western astrology for a number of years until 1986-87, James Braha came out with a book called Ancient Hindu Astrology for the Modern Western Astrologer. And that book really opened me up to really being able to um, make the bridge between tropical or Western astrology and the Vedic, or, or at that time it was called Hindu astrology system. So then I just studied, I studied with James Braha for a while and uh, some other teachers I had. And in 1988, I started seeing clients professionally. So that kind of dates me a bit, 30 years, I guess I've been in practice, started seeing clients professionally then. And I would do kind of a hybrid of Western astrology and then the Vedic system, I would bring it in. And then short, short, uh, over the f- next few years, it slowly became more and more part and parcel of what I did was providing, again, Vedic astrology for Western astrologers, as well as clients that maybe wanted to uh, tap into the astrology of India. Okay. And, and while you're doing that and developing that whole practice, you had also gone to school uh, for psychology, right? Correct. I actually, it was interesting. I graduated from the California Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in San Francisco in 1988. And that was right at the time when I started seeing clients professionally. So there was a big shift that happened around 1988 for me. I actually had a solar eclipse that September right on the sun, the same exact degree of my sun. So I always thought, you know, even though we look at solar eclipses sometimes as being challenging, they can be, you know, a rebirth or a kind of a reset of a whole new energetic. And so I started my practice and slowly developed it over the next several years in terms of seeing more clients. Okay. So what does that bring to you? I mean, I'm sure that brought something unique for you in terms of then your approach to astrology, in terms of having some of those, that background in psychology and counseling. Did did that bring a greater interest in the counseling aspects of astrology, even though you're getting into and starting to practice a more predictive form of astrology? Yes, I, I really felt strongly that uh, a good astrologer, uh, which again, I really would emphasize, has some really basic counseling skills and communication skills. Because, you know, you can be um, very accurate with your, quote, predictions or forecasting, but if you can't deliver that information in a way that's empowering to the client, uh, you can really do some damage. So when I saw this going on, sometimes particularly with predictive work and work coming out of India, sometimes the way it was practiced, I felt um, it didn't really have that basic empathy and communication skills to a way that it was empowering the client. And sometimes I think the shadow side 
whether you're using Western or Chinese or Vedic astrology and you're predictive in your work, I think the shadow side is, is again, that it can create worry or fear. So I was really strong about um, really being able to present the information so that it could help the client to take discriminative action in their life. But rather than being, um, how would we say, I, I like to say that uh, good astrology is a choice revealer. The astrologer is a choice revealer rather than a choice maker. So to leave the, the client with a sense of self-determination in their life and the importance of emphasizing free will and the grace of the divine, which can be stronger than some of these astrological configurations in the chart. Okay. So, and, and that brings us to a topic. So one of the things I sort of, it was before my time, but that I heard about happening is that even though in, in the West, you know, there were things like Project Hindsight and the revival of interest in traditional forms of astrology amongst practitioners of like modern Western astrology, the advent of, of interest in the West in Indian astrology predated that by at least a decade uh, when some of the books by people like James Braha or David Frawley or other people like that started coming out in the 1980s. And um, astrologers started setting up organizations for the study, study of Indian astrology in the West. And one of the things that I've heard about was that there were sometimes debates about what was ethical in terms of the practice that came up because of the sort of conflict between some of the modern counseling dynamics versus the more, um, I don't know how to describe it, but predictive or fate-oriented approach to astrology in India. Um, could Was that true, or could you describe some of that process that was happening in the 1980s and 90s? Um, more in the 90s, and I, again, I have to think about the actual date, um, but I was involved with ESAR, with the uh, International S uh, Society of Astrological Research, mm -hmm. about creating their ethical guidelines. I was on their board. And I worked with Dorothy Oja and actually Glenn Perry on those ethical guidelines. And what happened was, and we worked for many months on that, developing and honing that, uh, those ethical guidelines for ESAR. And then I asked Ray Merriman, who was the president at the time, if I could use that model for the American College of Vedic Astrology and actually the American Council of Vedic Astrology so that we would also, in our field, would have these ethical guidelines and standards. And what I did was kind of wordsmith some of it to uh, really meet more of the issues, again, around particularly, particularly prediction and forecasting and some of the other issues, remedial measures, things like that, that I felt needed some policing in a good way. So, and then our board uh, with the with ACFA, we um, basically voted to utilize this and put that on our website as well. So that was kind of how that that uh, that the ethical guidelines came in to Vedic astrology. Okay, and and does a lot of the issue come down to issues surrounding like fate and free will? Do you think that's part of the fundamental difference in terms of? For example, describing your um, consultation with Chakrapani, your first Vedic astrology consultation, and some of the statements that he made that were very straightforward and sort of unequivocal, but also seemed to be based on almost like a, a philosophical presumption that certain things in your life were sort of predetermined. Do you think that that difference between fate and free will is is a major sort of thing that that came up during that time in terms of importing Indian astrology to the West? 
Yeah, and I think any any astrologer and actually just philosophy in life, we have to struggle with the whole issue of fate and free will and, and destiny. And uh, I like to use the word patterns of destiny more than uh, fate, because fate's kind of, to me, is kind of rigid. Uh, but in the karmic theory of India, which I think is important to discuss, there are two types of what we could say more patterns of destiny. One is called Sanchitta karma, which is all the karma accumulated of our past lives. And again, Vedic astrology is definitely based on reincarnation theory. The second uh, point is what's called Prapta karma, which is the karma that we're working on in this lifetime. And so we could say the chart is a reflection of our Prabhda karma or these patterns of destiny. And then on the free will side of the equation is what's called Kriyamana karma, Chris. And Kriyamana is our action that we take in this life, our behavior. Sri Yukteswar Yogananda's uh, uh, guru and Vedic astrologer, he said that basically the first lesson on the spiritual path is to learn to behave. And so this involves our you know, how we act, how we behave in the world. And then the second part of the free will equation is uh, um, is also called, uh, let me see the name of it, it's called Agama. And Agama is how we envision the future. So how we're, we're envisioning the future. So those, so I always look at that as kind of like there's this interplay between destiny and free will. So they're both true, and it's kind of a paradox that I think we we all, in a way, kind of struggle with in terms of our philosophy. And I think whatever our philosophy is with those questions, then we bring it into our practice, and it does color or influence how we work with clients. Sure. So, so figuring out what your philosophy is and maybe articulating that or being very clear to clients what sort of philosophical or spiritual or metaphysical approach you're taking for granted might be important just in terms of being able to contextualize any any information that you transmit to them during the course of a consultation. Exactly. And if they do not hold the belief system in reincarnation, there's a challenge there. And it's important for the astrologer to be sensitive around that issue, even though I would say probably 80, 90% of the clients come to me have some you know kind of uh, foundation in terms of reincarnational theory. Sure. So most clients then, I guess, do their work or do their homework and before going to see an astrologer and typically will have some general understanding of what the astrologer's approach is, that if you do Vedic astrology, that you're going to have some basic underlying beliefs in, in things like karma and reincarnation uh, and so on and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Um, so and in terms of that, one of the things that you talked about, because part of this discussion is based on an article that you have on your website titled Vedic Astrology and Transpersonal Counseling, and I'll put the link to that uh, in the description page for this episode, but it's on your website at dennisharness.com. Um, but part of the basis of this discussion and sort of part of the direction that you go in the article is um, talking about different uh, counseling styles but also talking about it seems like there's a difference that's already coming up here about what you called like the astrologer's bedside manner. And I'm wondering if that's part of what the basic distinction is between, let's say, your approach versus the approach of somebody like like Chakrapani in terms of the way that the information is presented. Are there different uh, sort of styles in terms of presenting the information that might be uh, more or less useful or, or just be might be more suited depending on what your philosophical approach is? 
Yes, and actually, I instead of bedside manner, I, I coined the term chart side manner. Okay. So anyway, I um, I look at basically that there's three different uh, basically astrological uh, consulting styles that I've seen. Of course, there's more, many more than that, but just three basic ones. And one, the first one is what what I call the informational style. And uh, Chakrapani, you know, basically his style uh, was more that. He, um, for example, some of the clients he would see, uh, he would just make a recording of the session, wouldn't even be with the client, and then he would just send off at that point, they were cassette tapes to the client. So there was no interaction with the client whatsoever. It was just him looking at the chart and, you know, reading what he thought was there, what was important, and then sending it off to the client. Uh, This can also be true when I did the session with him uh, in person in 1980. It was still kind of this informational style. I don't think I asked that many questions. I just sat and listened to him, and he delivered the goods, so to speak. And again, it was a profound experience, so I don't mean to put down this style, but for me, it was kind of limiting, especially with my background in counseling. Because to me, one of the differences between, let's just say, a traditional astrologer and a psychotherapist is astrologers are paid to talk where psychotherapists are paid to listen. Mm. So in my practice, because I had the counseling background, my PhD is in counseling psychology, I wanted to interface more with the client and make it more of a dialogue between us rather than just an informational style. So I call the second style kind of more of a counseling style. And I think maybe even a better term that I find is kind of a consulting type style. And, you know, one of the models that we use for the American College of Vedic Astrology is kind of more along the lines of how would we put it? It's kind of a uh, the term spiritual life coach is used in terms of that. So, you know, you can get a degree or whatever, get certified, excuse me, in, in as a life coach. And that may be one model to go with. And so the counseling style, again, involves more of this interactive style asking questions, having the client ask questions, things like that. Uh, So I think that's important. One of the things that I do with my clients is I have them send an email of the different areas that they would like me to focus on. So I'm not just doing a blank slate kind of session, because again, my interest is more, uh, you know, using it uh, as an effective tool, as a diagnostic tool and a helpful tool to help the client take discriminative action. Sure. So instead of just looking at their chart and telling them what you think is important, actually asking them ahead of time what areas they would like to focus on? Correct. Correct. So this style, again, to me is what most astrologers do. And, you know, there's great programs out there for that. There's the uh, ESAR counseling skills uh, training that you can take. And there's also the Organization for Professional Astrology, which I was involved with for a number of years, uh, used to be called ProSIG or Professional uh, professional Astrologer Special Interest Group. And then we changed the name to OPA, the Organization for Professional Astrology or Astrologers. And I think those programs are really excellent. And then, as I mentioned, we have actually in the ACFA online program, uh, the third year of it is this consulting uh, or that spiritual life coach kind of style of consulting style. Yeah, one of the things I thought was interesting about the OPA approach, because I participated in one of their retreats once, was they did 
uh, in terms of some of their professional development, like getting together a small group of astrologers of, of I guess, four, it was four astrologers for my group, and then having them each each um, pairs up and reads another person's chart, but they do it in front of the group. And then there's like feedback that comes after that from the other professional astrologers in the group about your consulting style and things that were strengths versus other things that you might work on. No, that's great. I know I, I was involved with those trainings for a number of years and uh, they're excellent. Actually, one of the things that we did back in the Bay Area in San Francisco back in the 90s is uh, there was a group of us that met and we would do these kind of, uh, you know, talk about some of the, the challenging issues that we had doing astrological practice. And in that group was Greg Bogart, who's an amazing, you know, therapeutic astrologer. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Perry was in that group. And there were a couple other um, astrologers from the East Bay. But anyway, we would meet like once a month, and it was really profound to get that feedback from other astrologers, particularly around some of the issues uh, that came up that were more, again, challenging in practice. And, you know, that actually leads itself to the third type of astrological counseling, which is more rare, but becoming more, more a part and parcel uh, of particularly transpersonal psychology is more the psychotherapeutic model. And this would be a model where you're maybe seeing the client once a week and you're doing more in-depth psychotherapy. You know, Carl Jung, the famous uh, psychiatrist, psychologist from Zurich, Switzerland, he, uh, his daughter actually was a very uh, well-known astrologer in Zurich and would actually see, do the charts of not only clients, but also the analysts there. Mm. And Jung himself had a real profound interest in astrology. And he would say things like that in cases of difficult psychological diagnosis, I would often cast the chart to see things from a different vantage point, a different point of view. And he went on to say, I, I often found the chart elucidated some points that it would have taken me maybe years in psychotherapy to get to. So he was a real proponent of astrology, but he also saw the shadow side of it as well, which he discusses in some of his writings as well. So there was that um, um, strong transpersonal flavor that Jung basically popularized, which transpersonal basically means going beyond the ego or beyond the persona. So to me, astrology can be a real effective tool, part and parcel, if someone is does have a more of a transpersonal orientation to psychotherapy. Okay. So this is really the blending, the full like merger or like marriage of depth psychology with um, astrological readings is is what the third approach is. Yeah. And I, I people like Richard Tarnas and again, Greg Bogart, uh, Glenn Perry, uh, some of those, there's a number, of course, of other psychologists. I like guess Zip Dobbins was one of the early pioneers in that, in that field of psychotherapeutic astrology. So again, I think that model is nice because if you're actually, but again, the point is, is that you need to be licensed, I think, as a psychotherapist, I think, to be really uh, qualified to do that work. At least I think that's more of a safer path to go or more prudent path to go. Not necessarily that everyone needs to take that path. But uh, again, I think that may be a way to kind of cover your bases and cover your training. Sure, definitely. Um, Yeah, that would be the most not arduous, but um, you'd have to do a lot more training in terms of that, in terms of getting your full training as a psychotherapist, but then also getting some some decent training as an astrologer at the same time. 
which is is basically the path that you ended up taking throughout the 1980s, it sounds like. Yeah. And then I, I would say the other thing is that one of the greatest things that we have to offer our clients is our own state of consciousness. Mm. So this gets into the whole what I call the astrologer's shadow, which is a whole whole issues around, uh, again, doing our own inner work. And that the school I went to, the California Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, emphasized a lot of doing our own psychotherapeutic work, our own self-inquiry, our own working, you know, on the shadow or the unconscious aspects of our psyche. Right. So that's actually a big part of of being like a psychotherapist is you're also supposed to turn around and look at yourself and you're supposed to go through the process as well in order to to be aware of and continually working on your own psychological issues. Correct. Correct. Okay. So what I mean, what things can astrologers be aware of? Or maybe that's a good starting point. So you've mentioned a few times the times the astrologer's shadow. What are some of the things that maybe when an astrologer starts start seeing clients, what are the some of the potential pitfalls that might come from the astrologer? I think it's actually interesting. It's sometimes when you're doing really excellent work where you just seem to be spot on and you and the clients are loving your work and you get a lot of positive feedback and all that type of thing, which is wonderful, of course. Um, but what happens sometimes with that whole process is that the astrologer can get inflated and they can get kind of, how would we say, grandiose in their own self, um, their own viewing of themselves. And that that whole pitfall is kind of uh, making oneself feel godlike or goddesslike, where you're omniscient, where you're omnipresent. And that, to me, is a big part of the astrologer's shadow, is that grandiosity. Okay, so their their ego is sort of getting out of control and thinking that they're they're always right or that they're you know they have you know powers beyond maybe what what they actually have. Correct. And then also um, with that issue, uh, besides the grandiosity, is when you're, again, doing really great predictive work, um, there can also be that, uh, yeah, that sense, again, of infallibility. Um, and again, that, that can be a slippery, slippery slope. Okay. So what's, what is the antidote to that? I mean, as part of it, uh, I guess part of it is acknowledging your own limitations or the limitations of astrology? Yeah, I think keynote of uh, a good astrologer is a sense of humility. Mm. And this doesn't mean self-effacing. And again, it's important for a good astrologer to have self-esteem and self-worth, but to have a sense of humbleness that we we don't know all Seattle, that life is a mystery and that astrology can be, you know, again, a helpful roadmap uh, for sure. There's no question about it. Um, but again, to not overstep our bounds and also Chris, when you're working, say, with a client, especially if you're not a psychotherapist, you're working with a client, let's just say that some uncovering of sexual abuse comes up or even physical abuse, some kind of trauma. And if you're not trained in working with trauma or working with abuse like that, you can. there is a potential for there to do more damage because you can flood the client with too much information Whereas a good psychotherapist will go slow and steady in those areas and allow that unfoldment of the healing process to take place rather than trying to do it in an hour and a half. 
So when I was doing my astrology, we, we had Rolodexes, you know, so I always said, you know, one of the greatest things an astrologer can have is a good Rolodex or a good referral system so that you have psychotherapists or counselors that are trained in doing therapeutic work with some of these more difficult um, aspects that may be presenting themselves during the astrological session. Okay. So part of it is is recognizing your own limitations and sometimes realizing when maybe you're not the right person for this person to talk to, either not the right astrologer, in which case you might refer out to another astrologer, but other times perhaps astrology is not necessarily the answer or you need to re- refer people to um, an actual uh, counselor or psychologist. Correct. I mean, if you get a client, for example, that has um, severe depression and suicidal ideation, I think it's really important to um, offer that client some other resources that could help them uh, if you're not trained in dealing with those kinds of issues. So again, I think it's really wise and prudent to, to again, to have some prudence and caution as we work with clients and to be aware that, uh, again, as we've said, to not overstep our bounds. Sure, that makes sense. And that would be tied in with the general theme of, of humbleness as opposed to thinking that you can perhaps like solve you know, everyone's problems or solve all problems or that you're capable of dealing with anything that comes at you when, when perhaps there may be some things that you run into in a client session that are outside the scope of your, your own training or own abilities. Correct. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, with, with clients, because of the model that we were kind of trained in and our clients are trained in is that you see the astrologer once a year. Mm. And so, you know, uh, quite often, you know, to try to do all this incredible uh, work and uh, insight and diagnosis and healing and all that during an hour and a half session, again, is uh, is pretty grandiose to think that way. Sure. I mean, that raises an interesting question, though, about frequency, because I know that astrologers do have different expectations and different standards. There there's, it seems like there is no set standard in terms of frequency, you know, maybe once a year is, but it seems like some astrologers that have more of a psychotherapeutic model might be more comfortable seeing somebody more regularly and that being part of an ongoing relationship and something that's healthy, whereas there could be other situations where if somebody's seeing an astrologer too frequently and and developing maybe an unhealthy dependence. Correct. Correct. That's one of the um, kind of pitfalls, I say, with sometimes difficult client styles is the client that um, kind of develops kind of a psychic dependency or uh, dependency on the client and or on the astrologer. And again, it may not in the long run be of service, you know, to the client because they may need more, more in-depth help. Sure. Should we get into that, the challenging client styles? Yeah, I can mention some of them. And I, I, I want to um, preface it with saying that, again, I think it's important to respect all clients, even if they present with some of these more what I call challenging client styles. I think it's really important to have, you know, total respect and empathy, compassion, and unconditional positive regard towards our clients. But one of the um, longest hours that I've had to spend in my practice over the 30 years um, are with clients that I call the skeptic or the confounder. And this can be sometimes, not always, it sometimes can be just someone that dislikes to uh, uh, kind of go up against you, you know, in terms of maybe trying to disprove astrology. Sometimes it's also some, uh, the husband or even the wife, but usually it's the husband that gets kind of dragged into the astrological session. 
His wife says, you know, this is a great thing for you to do. And maybe he has very little or no interest in astrology. So that can be a challenge. And also, um, sometimes when a client is given a gift, again, of an astrological consultation, and again, they're not really um, open to astrology. So again, that's one uh, one aspect. I do feel, and Chakrapani taught me this, and it may be a little extreme, although Carl Jung said the same thing. He said the importance of whether you're, if you're a psychotherapist, counselor, or an astrologer, is that the client should treat you with respect. And of course, that respect should be reciprocal, as I mentioned. But if a client's disrespectful to you, um, I think it's best, actually, uh, this is, again, it's only happened to me a few times in 30 years, but it's, it's good to maybe just, just to stop the session mm. or just to say, you know, I, I feel like um, I, I can't be of help to you. So uh, I know this is very rare, but again, I think it's important to realize, again, the importance of mutual respect between the astrologer and the client. Sure. So that's one type. Well, and that's really funny was that you mentioned the consultation because that was something that I think you, I remember distinctly you warning that, that those tend to be the consultations that don't go as well, the ones that are often given as a gift. Um, because even though the intention is, is positive on the, typically on the person who's giving it to somebody that they, they love, like a loved one or a friend as a gift. Um, the person, if they're really not into astrology or, or don't think highly of it or don't want to do it, that's going to really raise the odds of the consulting session not going terribly well. Even if you are actually saying things that are correct in some ways, the person may not be open to receiving it or may not be able to, to see it. Correct. And um, I had a client once, I remember at a conference back in Chicago, that uh, came in and I started, you know, because my way is just doing more of a dialogue to start off with and asking them what areas. And he just looked at me and he said, uh, he said, no, I do not want you to know anything about me. Mm. I just want you to read the chart, you know, and tell me what you see. And I don't want to give you any input. So right. it was just kind of this really, I mean, that was probably <laughs> the longest hour of my life <laughs> or one of the longest. So that was a tough, tough, tough hour. And I probably should have said, you know, this, you know, this isn't working out. You know, this is not my style. Here's someone that I would recommend, you know, that does more kind of an informational style for you. So, sure. Well, but I went ahead and went along with it because I'm a nice guy and I'm a very compassionate person. And so, but again, if I had it to do over again, I think I would have just stopped the session. Well, and that's tough because there's a, there's an issue there about, you know, occasionally you'll hear the story or it's, it's almost like a cliche story of the astrologer who was a skeptic, but then something happened and they were exposed to the subject or had some sort of revelatory experience with astrology and suddenly, started a lifelong career as an astrologer like i feel like i've run into a few a number of astrologers with that story and so you never know if you are going to be that one consultation where somebody has that experience and on the one hand it's it's annoying and more frustrating and probably less productive overall for you to have to just like show off whatever you can do with astrology for this person in order to convince them that there's something to it but on the other hand, you know, maybe that can be like that one experience where you do change somebody's mind. Uh, but yeah, I guess I could go either way. 
Yeah. And I think, again, the key word there would be respect. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I have, like I said, I've in the 30 years I've been practicing, I've probably stopped a few sessions is all, you know, over that time. So again, but I think it's just important to just be aware of that because it it may kind of fluster the astrologer a bit, maybe take them back a bit. And just to note that you you will get clients like this. And again, just do the best you can and um, try to try to create, again, a good dialogue with them, I think can be really helpful. Sure, definitely. All right, that makes sense. And backing up your your first one, actually, that you listed in the article was the the professional. And I was wondering if we could get into that client style a little bit more deeply. Yeah, uh, this sometimes can be kind of the, the, what we were saying about uh, dependency that where they go and see an astrologer maybe once every couple of months and they try out different astrologers, which is fine and everything. But sometimes uh, in Sedona, particularly because everybody's, every other person's astrologer, psychic or mystic. I mean, my manicurist does palm readings, for example. And the, and the mechanic, the auto mechanic is, uh, is a psychic. So he, as I like to call him, he's a karma mechanic. <laughs> okay. But, you know, sometimes again, um, clients that really, um, you know, see a number of astrologers. I remember one client came into me and she gave me the cassette tape and wanted me to listen to it before our session of sessions she had done with Rob Hans, Zip Dobbins, these different astrologers. And she had kind of piecemealed like 20 minutes with each of these astrologers and wanted me to listen to it. And, uh, so, She's kind of what I consider a professional client. Mm. And the problem with this, um, this kind of dependency is sometimes it can indicate, uh, can interfere with the person exerting their own will. Mm. Because again, it can get into this kind of sometimes a little bit of a fatalistic, uh, idea. And then maybe shopping around to try to get, um, the astrologer to say what, what they want, want to hear. Okay. So there can be that aspect to it. Um, but again, sometimes I just call this the professional um, client, or or sometimes maybe giving you too much power, or asking the the diviner or the astrologer to make their choices for them. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So then, ideally, and maybe if we could flip this around, so the ideal scenario then, if that's the like less than ideal scenario, is trying to encourage that person to. Um, become more self-actualized and, and to sort of take charge of their own life in order to uh, not have to rely on like an astrologer or something in order to make their own choices, but maybe helping to wean them off of that or helping to show them that that maybe they're abusing that or it's become unhealthy for them rather than something that's that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, and again, you don't necessarily have to use words, but as I like to say, um, uh, to, to help them to take, rather than being, uh, take the, helping them, excuse me, to take an active role in their healing process, rather than just being a passive recipient of a cure, mm. would be the way I would word it. So again, it's helping the client to take discriminative action. But sometimes, you know, I'll say to the client, you know, again, you know your life better than I. I'm seeing these different patterns, and I want to share with you, and I am kind of consider myself kind of a timing coach you know, using the transits and in Vedic astrology, the dashas and other, quote, forecasting techniques. But at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's important to empower the client towards their own free will, their own choice. Okay. And, and even though in the more psychotherapeutic approach, there might be situations where you would want to have like an ongoing or a regular 
discussion uh, relationship with a client where you're seeing them and you're combining astrology with therapeutic counseling, it seems like this is a scenario where, where in some instances, you might actually want to discourage the person from maybe seeing astrologers as much if, if they're developing like an unhealthy dependence on astrology. I think so. I mean, Jung, and I can't remember the exact quotes, but that was one of the shadow sides he saw with astrology. You know, of course, you know, it was his opinion, but he he would use it a little bit more as a diagnostic tool, you know. Mm -hmm. And then he, he, you know, he was such an archetypal psychologist that, again, he would see the planetary archetypes and different things that uh, could, again, help the client to discover what archetypal stories, or I like to call them sacred stories rather than myths, that the client that may speak to the client and help them in their healing process? Okay, great. Um, all right, so that's the the first consulting style or potentially challenging uh, client style. The second was the skeptic or the confounder, and then the the third one that you have listed is the the agreeable client or the like the overly agreeable client. Yeah, this is a, quite often a client that just agrees with everything you say. And then the problem with that type of client, again, is that, of course, you could be wrong with what you're saying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so the importance, again, staying humble and realizing your fallibility. And then quite often with that type of client, there can be an issue of where they see you, again, as this godlike or goddess-like figure in their life, uh, like the oracle at Delphi, where you know all and see all. And the problem with that is that if you get a client, which is probably one of the most difficult clients to deal with, um, is what's called borderline personality disorder. Mm. And again, this is rare in practice, but if you can't spot a person with this kind of disorder or this challenge, better, I like to use the word challenge more than disorder, um, it can really, really create havoc for you. So a borderline client, what they can do is often see you as this perfect, you know, kind of godlike figure. And then when some of your, quote, forecasts don't come to bear, or if you happen to say something that creates a narcissistic kind of wound for them, any kind of critique, then you become, rather than God, you become Godzilla. Okay. So it's kind of what's called black and white thinking or splitting, where you're either all good or you're bad. And so sometimes with a client like this, they can really turn on you. And uh, I've had this happen several times over these three decades. And it, again, it's a really difficult situation to find yourself in as an astrologer, even as a counselor. Sure. So swinging towards extremes of either overly idealizing you as being like infallible or godlike versus swinging to the opposite of ex extreme of thinking that you're like the the devil or something like that. Correct. And sometimes we see this played out in politics and we won't get too political here but just to say, you know, sometimes uh people in high positions of power politically can see their people as a, as for them or against them. Mm. There's there's no gray. It's either black or white. And so when you see someone doing this, it's kind of a, a real primitive defense mechanism that, uh, again, can be, can be a real challenge if you're, if you're not aware of a client that may be doing this kind of uh, defense mechanism of called splitting. Sure. And, and that's really interesting. I mean, you're raising and mentioning like borderline personality disorder that just this is 
it just brings up the point that, you know, um, psychotherapy and, and counseling, this is a whole field that people go to school on and specialize in. And there's so many like nuances and details. And that when astrologer just starts to read charts, even though from an astrologer's perspective, they're often approaching it as a as an almost purely technical art in terms of their ability to look at this chart and then make statements about a person's life that are true. When you start doing that for clients, it really does put you into a, a counseling dynamic and it raises all sorts of things that you may not be aware of or have any training in that are are things that you're going to have to start start dealing with. Correct. Okay. So that and that therein lies sort of some of the importance and the emphasis that you were raising at the beginning in terms of getting some of those skills in counseling or or consulting and psychology. I mean at the at the very not lowest scenario, but but at the very least maybe doing some of these consulting training skills within the astrological community, but best case scenario actually um, getting some training as a as a, either a psychotherapist or as a, a counselor. Correct. Yeah, I think I think it's just prudent and wise to do that, and it kind of covers yourself too in terms of again getting yourself in over your head. Sure. Okay. Um, so that's the third challenging client style. The fourth one you call the confessional, and what is that? Sometimes a client again, and and this is. Um, part and parcel of being a therapist or an astrologer is that they will sometimes treat you as kind of a priest or a priestess, or how would we say, uh, kind of a father confessor or a mother confessor, where they want to share with them where, you know, where they really feel like they've missed the mark and where they've made mistakes in their life and and, uh, aspects like this. So again, I think it's good to hear those things out without, again, without judgment, without uh, laying any kind of shame or guilt on the client, even if your own sense of ethics and morality may not match what the client is saying to you. I'll give you an example. I had um, a couple come to me once, and they wanted me to do the compatibility between the two of them. And they were both married to different people. And of course, they were, you know, having an affair and their partners were not aware of this. So it was really put me in a tricky situation here because I think at the end of the day, if we can be honest with our partner, no matter what we choose to do, if we're polyamorous or whatever, it's fine. But, you know, when you're uh, leaving someone in the dark, I think there's an ethical issue there. But that's just my own sense of ethics. And so, I tried to just stay, you know, with the sinistry between them, tried not to pass judgment or whatever, but it was really strange. I saw them, we were at, I was at a hotel where I was doing, putting on a conference and I saw them the next day and someone in their parking lot had stolen their car that night. Mm. So they were left (laughs) without a car. And I thought that was real strange karma, you know, to have that happen. But again, I think we have to be careful with this to not um, put our own judgments, our own uh, you know belief systems onto a client. So it's again kind of a, a tricky area. But I think again, uh, there's a positive side to this whole confessional aspect too, where a client may really feel relieved to be able to talk to someone you know about these issues. And sometimes um, a client, I've had clients tell me that they felt more comfortable sharing their challenges and their difficulties with an astrologer versus even their psychotherapist. Mm. So because it was a one, 
maybe they thought it was more of a one-time deal, you know, one-time session. So they may have been able to let go of some guilt and shame around an issue that they, you know, uh, ultimately maybe would help, you know, heal in their therapeutic, their psychotherapy uh, counseling. Right. I've actually, I mean, I've, I think I've seen some articles about that of people speculating that astrology and similar things have almost become like a, like a folk type of, of counseling or counseling for people that don't realize that they're, they're, that they need or want counseling by going and just talking to an astrologer or somebody and using that sort of dynamic as something that's that's helpful or useful for them in, in that way without necessarily realizing that that's part of what they're doing. Yeah, and they may never go in-depth into healing some of these issues. It, they may just kind of, how would you say, skirt around the issue. Like, I think this is where it's really tricky for me as a, as a counseling astrologer is to also not condone um, Maybe, you know, behavior that's really, uh, again, um, how would you say, challenging or is going to create some problems down the road for a client. So I think we have to be careful also to kind of be, again, a fair witness, but uh, also, again, like I said, sometimes a client will come to you because they want you to say a certain thing, mm. you know, that it's okay, for example, you know, it's okay to have an affair or whatever. But again, uh, not to be judgmental, it's just that nine times out of 10, that kind of behavior uh, can create some problems unless everybody's on board and everybody agrees to that. So, Sure. So on the one hand, being the astrologer needing to um, be careful not to sort of project their own morality or, or other things or become judgmental or, or negative towards the client, but on the other hand, not necessarily always if the client is seeking um, approval or like absolution for something that might not be like a healthy dynamic that they're living out, that that's not necessarily the astrologer's job or it's not necessarily, the onus is not necessarily on you to to, to give that or to play that role necessarily. Yeah. It's kind of what I call kind of sugarcoating a session too, hmm. where rather than the agreeable client, you're the agreeable astrologer. Right. You just agree with, you know, and go, go along with things. And so it's tricky. It's a it's kind of a sticky wicket, I think. I mean, how does that come up though when it comes to like negative things? That seems like one of the most challenging things for me is that there might be a situation where some clients don't want to or are not capable of hearing more challenging or more negative things. And in terms of you know being the agreeable astrologer, where do the where does the astrologer fall in terms of wanting to say things and and put a constructive spin on things, but also sometimes acknowledge challenges or difficulties or hardships. It seems like the line between those is sometimes kind of blurry. Yeah. And the other thing is you have to, which is, which is uh, again, challenging in an hour and a half session, you have to try to assess what, what the client, you know, what may be helpful, what may be therapeutic in the session. And sometimes, you know, you could be totally right about something you've seen in the chart, but the client, as you were saying, may not be capable or ready to hear that, quote, truth. And so, again, it can create sometimes uh, havoc, you know, for the client uh, to press in too much to some of the challenges. But again, I, I like to use the word challenges, and I, I try to reframe the challenges into a positive aspect for them. So, uh, for example, um, Maybe they are running, uh, let's just say, a difficult Saturn transit. Just say Saturn's going over the moon. 
And uh, quite often in Vedic astrology, we call this Sadi Sati. It's when Saturn goes over the moon. Uh, and it nine times out of 10, I had clients actually, I don't know if our students at, at Kepler, I don't know if you did this process, but I had them talk about the last time they had Sadi Sati and any experiences that went on, particularly when Saturn was going right over the moon. And nine out of 10 of the, of the students, you know, it wasn't a cakewalk. Right. So to not sugarcoat that, but again, to give some kind of uh, sense of uh, that it can be a great time for detachment, for spiritual growth, to develop more of a fair witness, con- uh, 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 fair witness kind of consciousness, or to help them, again, to um, put their life in order more. So any, quote, Saturn transit, sometimes Saturn gets the shadow projected onto it quite often, and yet... Sometimes with these Saturn transits, as we know, um, whatever we, quote, fear, whatever the challenge we have, if we're able to work through it, becomes sometimes our greatest ally. So I try to reframe things in a more positive light, but also at the same time, I don't want to cheerlead a client off the cliff either. Right. So it's, again, that kind of balance that happens, uh, I think, with a good astrologer. And uh, I think the only way you besides getting counseling, training, these kinds of things, is just by being in the trenches with clients, you start to really develop um, more empathy and more of a skill set in order to reframe and put uh, even the most challenging aspects into some positive light or some ability to work through it. Because I think at the end of the day, you always want to leave a client with a sense of faith and optimism and hope. Sure. And and it seems like part of the point there, one of the points you made in the article that sometimes or most of the time it's it's more important to be helpful or to be healing rather than just to be right. Or being right is not always paramount necessarily as an astrologer, even though obviously we strive for and, and you want to be accurate in your statements as an astrologer, sometimes just because you can say something doesn't necessarily mean that you should. Yeah, it's that right timing aspect. And again, if you're having an ongoing uh, counseling uh, relationship with a client, then again, you don't have to unload everything you see in one session. And again, I think it's again uh, something that we need to be prudent about, even if we're just if we are just seeing a client, of course, for one session. Sure, and and it seems like some, that's something that astrologers learn how to do or learn how to assess pretty quickly on like a client by client basis, because there might be some area or something you would say to one client and they would they would be perfectly fine in receiving that information versus another where you could say something similar or or make a similar statement in a certain area of life where that might be actually really harmful or or hard for them to to hear in in some way uh so it's almost it becomes something an assessment you have to make on a client by client basis it seems like right correct and if for example if you get a client that's really depressed um Again, I think it's always good to lean on the side of focusing on the positive strengths in the, in, the, in the astrological chart and in the session. So to build on the strengths rather than pointing out the challenges right away. So it's good to, um, again, to accentuate, I think, the positive. Sure. So that actually leads us to the fifth counseling uh, dynamic or challenging dynamic that can co- sometimes come up with clients, which is the sort of rescue me type client. I think that's what you called it. Yeah, it's can be uh, a client that maybe is looking for you to, that you have the magic pill that's going to make their life um, 
you know, all, you know, uh, better, or you have a kind of a, a magic wand, as I put it, uh, to, to make everything fine. And, um, sometimes with, with this client again, um, because they're wanting you to, to rescue them and to help them, which is a great quality to have. But sometimes as astrologers, we have a tendency to be kind of codependent. And sometimes we can uh, so much want to give to a client that we can get depleted in the process. So sometimes with a Rescue Me client, after the session, you may feel really depleted, feel like the energy is just kind of almost sucked out of you. So again, um, I think we again, need to always in with rescue me client again, to try to put the energy back into them or their, the power back into their hands in terms of making the changes that they need to make in their life to, so things that can move more slowly and move in a good, healthy developmental way. Sure. And that, that seems a blend of some of the others as well, in terms of the astrologer, not necessarily being, not projecting onto the astrologer that they're infallible or acknowledging the limitations or being realistic about what astrology can do and that the astrologer can't necessarily just wave a magic wand and make everything better or make it perfect in a, in a person's life. Yeah. And, and, and um, as Freud said, the two things that clients come to you with are to work and to love. And so sometimes with a rescue me client, they want to know when they're going to meet Prince Charming, mm. you know, or the, the princess. And also lucky numbers in the lottery and all kinds of things, you know, so that uh, somehow magically their life's going to be better, you know, financially or, uh, you know, in terms of relationship or career. But again, I think you want to emphasize where you see uh, different transits, for example, or different uh, dashas or subcycles, as they're called, buktis in Vedic astrology, where the person may, you know, be able to really... Um, meet someone or connect up with their more their dharma in terms of their career. But one of the challenges, let's just say if Jupiter's transiting through the seventh house and you may say to the, the, the client, you're going to meet some, there's a good chance of meeting someone during this time of this Jupiter transit. And then sure enough, um, they meet, you know, a really great person that matches their, uh, matches their pictures and they end up getting married. And then a year or two later, because of, um, just the challenges in the, let's just say, in the synastry between the charts or other aspects that are going on, not necessarily astrologically, but just in terms of their the partner they choose, they go through a divorce. Mm. And so, again, uh, I think we have to be a little bit prudent in terms of uh, just wanting to rescue clients or, again, waving the magic wand that's going to make everything okay. Right. That's really challenging in terms of when they're wanting or hoping or looking forward for something and looking for you for confirmation of that. And sometimes it seems like an, an issue that the astrologer can run into uh, that can be difficult is being influenced by what the client wants and needing to be careful when you're looking at some transit or some activation in the future that's coming up, um, maybe not being overly influenced so that you sort of, there's like a transference of almost like they're wanting that thing and you look for it in the transits and, and sort of see something that looks moderately positive, but maybe taking it to be overly positive than it actually will be. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, it's uh it's a, it's again, a, just a thing to be able to look at and to recognize. And like I said, we, as, as therapists or astrologers, we have such a desire, strong desire, which is a wonderful thing to help people, mm -hmm. you know, 
But sometimes, again, as I say, we can be we have to be careful not to cheerlead someone off a cliff. Sure, sure. All right. Um, and then finally, the the last challenging client style that you list was the the victim. Uh, what is that? Um, that is again client that may feel that their chart is ref- they feel that they're maybe being punished by by God, you know, and so they get into playing, you know, kind of a victim role to life. And again, granted, there are victims and we see it every day in terms of people that are abused or whatever kind of victimization. So I don't mean to downplay this, but um, I think at the same time, want to encourage them again to, um, as I mentioned earlier, to be an active participant in their healing process. So kind of helping them to get out of uh, kind of victim consciousness that the end of the day doesn't really serve that much. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes, and again, I have to be really careful how I word this, but sometimes behind someone that's a victim playing victim, and this is more when they're playing victim, uh, there can be a persecutor. So rather than seeing where they may be uh, inflicting challenges or pain on someone else, it's easier for them to play the role of them feeling victimized. There's a technique, there's a, uh, how would you say, a psychological term called projective identification. Whereas let's just say if someone has a lot of anger in them, where they may try to invoke the anger in you so that the anger is outside of themselves. So they don't have to do with their own internal anger and then it's placed outside of themselves. And so, again, uh, I think just helping a person to, uh, to, again, to take an active role in the healing process, as I mentioned, you know, is a essential kind of uh, quality that we have to, um, we're kind of like a motivational coach, really. Uh, and again, I would use the, the uh, for most of us, maybe a spiritual life coach is a, is a model that, uh, that uh, may feel comfortable for a lot of astrologers. Right. It's, it's so interesting the number of different fields that you end up having to take and develop some ability or some specialization in that get incorporated into being a, a practicing or a consulting astrologer. Because we've you've already named like a at least five or six different fields where there's different things that you need to sort of draw on or have some familiarity with in order to be sort of a really effective uh, astrological consultant. Yeah. And then, you know, it even gets into the whole field of medical psychology, medical astrology, excuse me, uh, which again, uh, can be a slippery slope if you're not, you know, a doctor, or if you don't, uh, again, we have to be careful not to, um, uh, to prescribe, um, illnesses and things like that. I think that's, again, one of the kind of, uh, challenging areas when you see something in the chart that may look like a health crisis coming. And how to word that in a way that, again, is giving the client a heads up, but not creating fear or worry. So it's a delicate uh, dance, you know. And again, sometimes I may just say, you know, just really great this year to, you know, just, you know, especially if a person, of course, is in their 50s or 60s, it's probably prudent and wise anyway. But, you know, maybe to get a complete physical and things like that or Sometimes I'll see in the charts like dental problems and I'll just say, you know, it's really great for you to see your dentist twice a year, you know, and if any issues are there, fine. If not, you know, no worries. But I just see things sometimes in the charts that show up 
or maybe a client that really has a, a woman client that has a really difficult um, chart for having children. Mm-hmm. Have to be really careful about that because um, sometimes I'll ask the question before I even say anything about what is your um, what is your uh, desire in terms of having children, you know. And if they say, you know, I have no desire to have children or whatever, you know, then I may say something, well, it looks like your chart that this may have been kind of a little bit of a caution light in that area of your life. And you may have kind of circumvented um, a challenging kind of karma to take on this lifetime. And I've heard numerous women have said to me, you know, God, it relieved a lot of guilt that they felt about not having children. Mm. And usually something, I I like to see things like show up three or four times in the chart. And then this may be a little bit more fixed karma, Chris, when you see something, you know, a signature showing up three or four times. But again, you have to be careful um, to make any kind of fatalistic predictions about uh, for women about children. But again, I I kind of check things out a little bit more before sharing that, um, that information, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I actually enjoy much more on some level sometimes about seeing uh, clients that are older is that so many, so much of the major events in their life have already taken place and you're able to just have a discussion about the chart where uh, they're already fully aware of like most of the major, you know, upsides and downsides in their life. And some of those themes have already played themselves out so that you can talk about it realistically without necessarily fear of um, you know, something that's still coming up down the line in the future. Whereas when you're talking to a younger client, sometimes that can be more tricky, both because you have less sort of retrospective things to talk about, um, but also because some aspects of their chart simply haven't manifested yet. And so there may be very prominent themes that are still sort of upcoming, but that they can't necessarily relate to now. Correct. No, that, that's, that's important. I do. I just had a couple of teenage clients in, um, and normally, I'm, again, kind of careful unless they really want to see me, you know, in terms of teenagers, usually more if they're like 18 or something like that. But again, I wouldn't ever say to a client, you know, you as Chakrapani said to me, you'll be married twice, you know, I just wish he would have told me to wait. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so and I was only about 24 at the time when he said that to me. But still, you know, I would I just it's not my style to ever say that to a client or to a woman client that she's not going to have children or things like that. I just, I don't go there. I don't, I just, I call it the three D's. I don't like to predict death, divorce, or disease, Mm. because I think by doing that, you're again, playing kind of God in someone's life. And uh, I think it's, again, I've seen sometimes where you even see maybe a client that has some difficult aspects where they actually may be leaving their body and they go through some kind of death rebirth experience, you know, either physically and or emotionally, mentally, spiritually. So I think we have to be careful about predicting death. Uh, for, and, you know, and again, I could go into more detail on that. One thing I would say is that um, there was a book written a number of years ago by Richard Hout called the astrology of death. And, uh, I remember Michael Luton uh, talking to me at one one of the conferences, and he said, "You know, Richard Houck sent me a copy of this book and wanted me to, you know, write a endorsement of it." 
And I, he said, I didn't even need to read the book. I just told Richard, this book scared the shit out of me. <laughs> you know? so, Was that his endorsement? Again, I don't remember. That, yeah, that, right. That'd be great on the back cover. Yeah, right. And what kind of a sad part of that is Richard was asked how long he would live himself. And I think he said until he was like 79 or something. And a few years later, he died of cancer. Hmm. So it's just, to me, these things are, you know, particularly death, even though you may see it in the chart and everything like that. I think, again, it's just an area that my teachers from India just said it's better to not uh, predict death or disease for that matter. Okay. Um, yeah, I used his chart as an example at one point because he has the ruler of the ascendant tropically in the eighth house, which I always thought was really fascinating that he ended up writing that book. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, and then everything that happened with with that afterwards. Um, so that actually brought up, or just to go back a couple of steps uh, with older versus younger clients, where do you draw the, the line in terms of age? I know some astrologers like won't see clients below a certain age or Sometimes you have the third-party chart issue of a parent wanting to bring a child's chart. Where do you fall in terms of that? Are you are you okay with that, or do you have any issues with that? Or it's it's really um, it's fraught with a lot of difficulty. I mm -hmm. think uh, I would say all things being equal, probably better to wait uh, until the you know the teenager, you know, like say 16 to 18, something like that in terms of doing initial session. And even with that, I usually just do a half hour mm. and I'll tend to focus on the positive things that I'm seeing in the chart, the strengths that I'm seeing in the chart. So I think it's, uh, again, a real challenge to do that. And then you get into a whole issue about third party things. And again, a lot of times, you know, clients that you've seen for a number of years want you to look at their infant's chart, you know. And again, I think it's just a kind of a precarious situation. So I've done it in the past and I've always felt like this is an area that where the ethics uh, are a little gray. Mm -hmm. But again, I would tend to just look at the chart. And if I see, you know, really pronounced Venus, for example, I'll say, I think it's good for you to, uh, for the child to go to a school that emphasizes the arts. Maybe it could be like Waldorf or Montessori, or even if it's public school, but that, you know, the school really has a, you know, um, a lot of emphasis in music, dance, drama, theater, you know, art, uh, things like that. So I may see that in the chart and point that out. But again, I tend to steer clear of making any kind of um, even challenging forecast or any of that kind of thing um, with uh, children's charts. So. I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think it's uh, I think it's a really uh, really good question and something that as astrologers we need to kind of grapple with and and to be careful. Yeah, it's one of the things that it just there's some things when you read the different ethical guidelines that certainly come up and that it's clear that the astrologers that the, there were some debates around like what's appropriate to practice versus what's not and third party charts is one of those ones that always raises some interesting debates about whether it's okay for an astrologer to read a chart of somebody that's not in the consulting room with them right at that time. Like if somebody brings in a potential like love interests chart, or if, if a parent brings in a child's chart or other things like that. And the ethical guidelines for, for ESAR, I think, actually say that you're not actually allowed to do that, right? If I'm remembering. Correct. That. No, that's correct. I think that's the safe way to play it. Um, Sometimes with clients, I have asked the question, um, do I have permission 
to look at this person's chart, mm -hmm. you know. But even there, you know, that can be a slippery slope because whether they're actually telling you the truth or not is another question. But at the end of the day, I just think it's cleaner to, um, you know, just to have the person uh, that's getting, you know, that you're looking at the chart for them to be present, you know. Uh, there are situational ethics sometimes that get into play here, you know. Um, so um, if someone's abusive to their partner, like how do you deal with that? Things like that. So I think, but at the end of the day, I think it's just cleaner probably to not do third-party charts. Sure, sure. Um, and finally, one of the areas is it seems like sometimes establishing proper boundaries with clients seems like it, it can be an issue that astrologers have to learn once they, they get into it. How is that? Is that something that you've had to develop like a sense of that about how to establish proper boundaries? I think, again, it's probably cleaner, you know, if possible, just to not, um, you know, not, it's, it's tough because, you know, sometimes clients come to you that are your, your close friends, you know? So it's not, mm -hmm. I think it is a gray area, but um, I think it's probably, again, it's like with psychotherapy, it's probably better to just keep a professional relationship if possible. I just think it's cleaner sure. and probably uh, more professional to do that. But again, there's always situational ethics that come into play. And um, like, you know, like, for example, you know, friends or things like that, that want you to look at their chart. I mean, you're not going to just diss them as friends. But of course, you can right. refer them to another astrologer or whatever. But at the end of the day, uh, again, I think this is kind of a gray area. Uh, probably good, though, if possible, just to keep healthy boundaries. Sure. And and sometimes uh, that can come up simply in even like post-consultation follow-up. Like I, I know that sometimes usually there's some follow-up after a consultation or even maybe the person says that they had a major question they meant to ask, but they forgot and they want to ask you a follow-up question. And, and I think usually astrologers are relatively okay with that within limits, but then sometimes there might be somebody who pushes that boundary and maybe tries to ask like 20 questions and having to sometimes be firm about saying, you know, this is really something that would take enough time that's going to require a separate consultation and it's not something I can address now. Is that something you've dealt with a little bit or how do you, where do you, where do you come yeah. down on stuff like that? Uh, well, actually one of the challenges is when, when you have clients invite the astrologer to dinner. Okay. You know? <laughs> and so then literally along with dessert, they want to pick your brain, you know? Mm. And so again, I tend to steer clear of that, gotcha. but, um, one of the things that I do encourage to an extent um, is to sometimes, if it's appropriate, if I feel right, um, just have the client. I'll just say, you know, just kind of email me down the road an update of how you're doing. And it's just kind of a way for me to reach out to them, and uh, it, but leave it in their court in terms of if they want to contact me in terms of, uh, terms of further contact. Sure. But again, if it becomes you know, a lot of questions and things like that, then sometimes I'll even just schedule like a half hour update, things like that. Okay, got it. All right. Um, and it seems like a lot of the things that came out of this is just one of the points you made earlier is that book learning has its limits and you can learn a lot about astrology from books, obviously, and that's always going to be our primary resource in addition to our teachers. But there's something about actually doing consultations where there's so much of this that you don't learn until you're actually in the trenches and then you, you, there's things that you have to pick up and learn as you go. So, you know, in terms of getting started doing consultations, do you have any advice if somebody was just getting started or how you know when you're ready to start seeing clients? 
Well, I think one way is to, you know, is to get some certification. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a safe way to do it is just to get, whether it's through ESAR or through American College of Vedic Astrology or the Council of Vedic Astrology or some of the other organizations, NCGR or OPA, to get, you know, some basic uh, certification, I think is a smart way to go. But once you've done that, once you've got that foundation, uh, Chakrapani said to me, you know, he often said to me, just do charts. So again, uh, it's like, that's a, you know, big question. Like, when do you actually start? And for some people, I think, I think it is a situational thing where some people are just so gifted at it that they may be able to start more readily seeing clients, you know, sooner. And some people, it may take them, you know, several years to feel that. But I think at the end of the day, you can also wait forever. Right. You know, and, and, and it's just, like you said, you know, you just, you know, ultimately have to get into the trenches and experience things. And, uh, you know, again, stay humble, go even charging. Um, sometimes I recommend to, uh, to, uh, young or not necessarily young by age, but, um, astrologers that are just starting their practice to maybe, you know, charge more of a minimal amount of money or do, um, do a sliding scale fee or something like that, maybe to start out, you know, to build their practice. Uh, so these are just some of the things that I would say. Yeah, there's something about even just a minimal exchange of even if it's like $5 or $20, but starting to exchange your time as, as an astrologer in exchange and your your whatever knowledge you have, even if it's just a, a little bit of knowledge in exchange for, you know, some small like monetary exchange that it, that is important. And it seems like you don't want to get stuck in the role of the perpetual student if you ever do want to become a professional astrologer, because astrologers often have this misconception that you'll reach a certain point and then you'll know you'll know everything that there is to know about astrology, and that's the point at which you'll start seeing clients. But one of the things that more established astrologers realized is that nobody, no astrologer ever stops learning, that even the most experienced astrologers who've been doing it for, for many decades still kind of learn new things every time they see a client, right? I mean, is that, would that be true from your experience? Correct. You know, and that's to me, again, through direct experience uh, is again, where you're, you're, to me, my clients have been my greatest teachers mm-hmm. and not to put down my teachers, of course, they're sure. huge, but the clients, you know, you've seen, you know, hundreds of clients, thousands of clients. I mean, they're, they're the ones that are really teaching you to hone your skill and hone your craft. Right. So, and, and I think that's the reason why at some point it's good once you have some sort of basis or some sort of education or training just to start doing it, even if you're doing it for free or, or what have you, but to start getting that experience because that's how you'll really learn and grow as an astrologer eventually. Yeah. And I think it's important as you're saying, I think there should, should be some exchange of energy. I think the uh, whether it's money or some service or some kind of bartering, although bartering can have its challenges, um, that there should be some kind of exchange of energy. And that, in a way, is also the client uh, respecting the astrologer and respecting um, their work, you know, and, and realizing that is it is of value. Right. That's perfect. Yeah, that really goes back to that original point about respect. And that seems like such a bigger component. And I'm so glad you brought that up because like it, like in India, it seems like astrologer is a respected profession, and it's so much more respected than in the West. That that's such a different um, mindset, but there's something valuable about that. Maybe 
I think that you're bringing in a little bit by emphasizing that component to some extent, not in not in going too far in like treating the astrologer as like godlike or infallible, but still having some fundamental respect for astrology as a as a sort of profession and as a valuable tool that the client you know is is seeking to partake from in having a consultation with an astrologer. Yeah, and I, I've just seen over these last three decades, you know, just so much um, more respect for this as a profession. Sure. Uh, so it's been great to see, and just how the the level of again ethics and integrity and uh, all that it's just grown, you know, uh, I think leaps and bounds over the course of time. And I I would say too that one of the other things that uh, we just met at UAC, of course, in Chicago. Uh, I think one of the other things that I would recommend to um, uh, budding astrologers is to go to conferences, to really immerse yourself in, like you said, there's always things to be learning, always ways to grow. And that, you know, sometimes the greatest um, information happens in the bar or the lounge, you know, of people just sharing things, you know. So, and just that interaction with your peers, uh, to me, is just huge. Yeah, that's part of you know being a professional and connecting with other professionals and doing sort of continuing education as well and continuing to ex- be exposed to what's going on in the community and sometimes new ideas or learning new things yourself, but also making some of those professional connections and exchanging knowledge and information and even just anecdotes like this, like some of the anecdotes you shared with us about different consultations you've had and dynamics, I mean, that's really valuable information that for you is like a lived wisdom and experience. But but in sharing that with somebody, even in passing as like an anecdote, actually has tangible value. And sometimes th- that's a lot of what happens at conferences. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. And to just be with your sangha, be with your community, um, I think is, is huge. Because sometimes we can as astrologers, we can tend to isolate sometimes. And uh, I think it's important to uh, keep dialogue going. And like you were saying, nice nice to have, like we were doing in San Francisco, and OPA does that, as, um, as peer group supervision, I think is really a great way to hone your skills. And to have, you know, have, uh, have one of your uh, mentors to actually listen to one of your sessions. Of course, you'd have to ask the client permission but uh, and for them to give you feedback on um, again your your astrological skill as well as your counseling skill. Sure, definitely. And um, since we're getting towards the end of this, we mentioned uh, conferences, and I'm actually excited about you're doing a conference later this year in Sedona in November, right? Right. Uh, it's the um, Sedona Vedic Astrology Conference, and it's November 30th to December 3rd in Sedona, Arizona, which is a couple hours north of Phoenix, and Sedona, those of you that don't know, it's a very mystical place. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. The Native American Indians treated it as their temple because there's these incredible spires of red rocks. And it's just a, you know, you've been here. So it's just a power spot uh, on the planet. And um, we have over 25 uh, faculty and there's uh, beginner, intermediate, advanced classes we have all-day intensives, a um, number of people, uh, Joni Petrie and Camilla Sutton and Sam Jeppy and uh, Jeffrey Armstrong, Andrew Foss, a uh, number of uh, uh, also Eve also uh, and Dr. Pai. Eve, Eve and Dr. Pai are going to do an all-day intensive on the nakshatras. And 
So it's just a, a variety of different classes. And we have a room this year devoted to yoga and meditation. So people need to kind of chill out and do some yoga or meditate and kind of take a break from all the mental <laughs> kind of, of energy of learning astrology that that's available as well. So uh, anyway, hope, hopefully you can come. It's, um, we'd love to see you there, Chris. And the website is just SedonaVedicAstrology.com. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I'm actually thinking about maybe uh, going out there for that to see some lectures because one, there's, there's still so much that Western astrologers can learn, especially Western astrologers like myself that are into traditional astrology can learn from the practice of Vedic astrology because there's so many currents in Vedic astrology still that are things that used to be practiced in the West 2000 years ago in the Hellenistic tradition, but that were lost and they're still, you know, active and live traditions in Vedic astrology today. Even things very simple like using whole sign houses, but also more advanced things like the Dasha systems, which are often used very similarly to the the Time Lord systems. And I'm sure there'll be some talks on Dasha's at the conference, right? Oh, correct. Yeah. I think Joni Patri's doing an all-day intensive how to interpret the birth chart, but you know, she primarily focuses a lot on dashas and transits as well. And, you know, uh, again, going back full circle to when I met you and uh, if you're, you know, you remember so well how there was so much overlap and cross-pollination that went on with the Hellenistic world and the, and the Vedic astrology world. Um, so it's just to me, there was just such fascination in terms of how there was this uh, confluence between the two systems and that interplay between the two cultures. Right, definitely, and and that's the most fascinating thing because we're just reviving, recovering Hellenistic astrology through translating texts, but we only have so many texts, and the texts are sometimes very cryptic or very brief, and sometimes you can see that um, Vedic astrologers are still continuing many of those practices today and have expanded upon them in in very interesting and useful ways. So that's definitely one of the reasons why I'm interested in, in thinking about attending. In addition to doing some interviews, and one of the things I loved about your conference last year, because you you did the same conference last year, is it seems like you're drawing, you, you seem very conscious of what's going on in the astrological community. And I noticed that you drew on some of the astrologers that are doing Vedic astrology on YouTube that are becoming very prominent. You seem to be paying attention to and invited them to speak at your conference, which I really appreciated because you're actually doing outreach to some of like the newer and upcoming generations of astrologers who are developing this following like independent of the astrological community but aren't really necessarily integrated into it and that they're not speaking at like major astrology conferences and things like that but you seem to be trying to make some inroads with with some of those people it, it seems like right yeah and i i really try to have about a third of the faculty be fresh and new you know mm. and a number of them are younger astrologers and i i to me it's like you know, younger astrologers, you know, let's just say astrologers, um, you know, below the age of 40 have so much more fresh energy that they're bringing to the table. And some mm -hmm. of us older guys, you know, we're kind of get stuck in our, in our patterns, you know, especially if we have a lot of fixed signs in our charts. So I think, again, there's that mutability with younger astrologers and that freshness and being able to see things from a different point of view, a different light. And connecting up the dots with, again, these finding the unity and the diversity and learning more than one astrological language. Uh, to me, the famous psych psychologist Abraham Maslow, one of the founders of humanistic psychology, he said, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. 
So the idea is that to have to be bilingual or trilingual in astrology to me is a great gift. And a lot of our astrologers or a lot of our faculty, excuse me, are neo-Vedic astrologers, what I call them, where like like myself, I use the outer planets, you know, even the asteroids to me are fascinating, you know. So I think we need to realize that the spirit of the Vedas was to be open to all forms of truth. And I think that's one of the shadow sides of Vedic astrology. Sometimes it can just get locked so much into the ancient knowledge that it doesn't allow for new, fresh energy. And I guess, you know, it could be a challenge, of course, with Hellenistic astrology or any form of astrology, for that matter, to be open to new ideas and fresh perspectives. Sure. Yeah, it's that balance between any focus on older traditional forms of astrology, there can be that tendency to it solidifying and staying sort of stuck in the past or stuck in certain trends versus the opposite extreme of the extreme new astrology where you you have no reverence for tradition or no sort of foundation, but things are always changing and are always different. Yeah, it usually seems like it's best to adopt some sort of approach between those two extremes. Yeah, and I like what Joseph Campbell, the famous cross-cultural mythologist, said, though, too. He said, just because something's ancient doesn't mean it's better. So I think we have to be a little careful, too, with the, um, how would you say, glorifying ancient knowledge, even though I love the ancient stuff. You know, it's like, give me the old-time religion. (laughs) Give me the old-time stuff. I I just find it so fascinating. But again, to not get locked into uh, to that. And again, that's where, to me, the counseling skills and the consulting and psychotherapy and all these things bring in this fresh new energy and perspectives on how to, again, deliver the information so that it will be empowering rather than imprisoning. Definitely. That makes sense. Well, I think that's a, that's a great point to wrap up on. Um, so your website is dennisharness.com. And what was the website for the, the conference again? It's SedonaVedicAstrology.com. Excellent. All right. Well, people should check that out. And I'll put a link um, in the description for this episode as well. Um, but yeah, thank, thanks a lot for joining me today for this. Oh, great, Chris. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was great to, great to connect again. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure to check out Dennis's websites. And uh, I will see you next time.